This Snap Judgment podcast is brought to you by our friends at Stamps.com. You know, these days, you can get practically anything on demand, just like this show. But did you know you can even get postage on demand at Stamps.com? It's easy. You can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer or printer. And Stamps.com will give you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you'll need for any letter or package. You'll print the postage directly onto envelopes, labels, even plain paper. And then just hand your mail to your friendly mail carrier. There's no need to go to the post office ever again or even get one of those expensive postage meters. And right now, there's a special offer just for listeners of Snap Judgment. A no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in SNAP. That's stamps.com. Enter SNAP and happy mailing. Okay, so I had just met this really cool lady at a mutual friend's place. She was funny, vivacious. She promised me she knew how to cook and invited me over to her apartment. And for some reason, I do not remember why, but sitting in her kitchen, we started talking about summer camp. And I told her stories of this wacky church summer camp I used to attend as a kid. And she said, let me show you some photos from my camp. She found this big, thick volume, handed it to me. I flipped it open and it immediately turned to a picture of her. I looked and laughed out loud. Ha <laughs> ha! Because I couldn't help but notice that this woman, who was now stunningly beautiful, had very much suffered an ugly duckling face. Wow, you look crazy different. And I turned more pages in the book and saw that it wasn't just that she suffered from a lanky adolescent phase. She looked gaunt and emaciated. And I started looking closer at some of the pictures and noticed that some of the other kids in the photos, they looked to be struggling themselves no more laughing I kept turning pages and then I stopped I said to her you were very sick as a child yep and this was a camp for people like me and she handed me a glass of wine and she looked me right in the eye and I almost didn't make it Day on Snap Judgment. From PRX and NPR, we proudly present Walk in My Shoes. Amazing stories where the curtain is pulled back and we see the load someone else is really carrying. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Now, we're going to kick off today's episode in Oklahoma. Ten years ago, Paula Schonauer was the star cop of his precinct in the Oklahoma City Police Department. I was a well-respected officer. I helped teach in the police academy. I helped solve a couple of homicides, and I won Police Officer of the Year from Exchange Clubs International. I mean, in the newspaper and on television, local hero, I was a hero. I had confided to a few people during that fall that I had been diagnosed with gender identity disorder, I still hadn't decided if I was going to transition or not. I was just trying to understand what this meant for my life. And I obviously told a couple of wrong people, and the word got out. Rumors were flying everywhere, and I went ahead and came out of the closet because the truth was better than the rumors. And I went from hero to zero in one month. When everything came out about me, everybody was really surprised. 
People were talking about me being a pervert, some kind of sex offender, potentially. I remember one lieutenant say, if I ever get shot, that make sure you wear your gloves because I'm sure to have AIDS and stuff like that. I'd been riding such a high only a short time before, and then I was, I, I'd lost everybody's respect. I was really trying very hard to do my real-life test, which is where you live full-time in your new gender. I was having trouble passing on the street. People didn't know whether to sir me or ma'am me. And even after I transitioned, I'm wearing my hair in a feminine way and I'm wearing makeup, they would still sir me. And I was talking with a friend of mine and she said, well, honey, you need a set of nails. And she took me to a nail salon and got me my first set of nails. They were sculpted and beautiful gold. I went conservative. I was afraid to go red. <laughs> I pulled a woman over on traffic. I walked up to her and she looked at me and her eyes get kind of wide. And, and I say, do you have your driver's license insurance verification? And she looked at me and she's just searching me. And then she looked at my hands and she smiled and kind of sighed, okay, yes, ma'am. I just gave her a warning. I was too happy to write a ticket. After I got my nails, I was mammed every time. I was working hard to prove myself again, but it was like people didn't trust what I said. All of a sudden, I'm, like, I'm, I'm this airhead that no one wants to pay attention to. I, I was praying for something to happen, something decisive, a good fight. I was patrolling in the Paseo neighborhood, and I hear this call come out. Over at 29th and Classen, drive-by shooting. Suspect in a blue Buick drove by a business and opened fire. Victim is down. I'm close by, and I'm en route when I see a blue Buick speeding down south on Chartel. And when he sees me, his eyes get real big, so I know he's my suspect. When I get behind him, I know immediately he's going to run. And the adrenaline shoots up in me. I love that feeling. And I was, yeah, here we go. I'm on the ride now. He drives down, goes east for a few blocks, uh, north a few blocks, and he's just going into a big circle. So usually when they do that, I know that he's getting ready to bail out of the car. So I'm staying as close to him as I possibly can. Finally, he tries to turn into this alley. He loses control of the car and spins 180 degrees. Our cars are face to face. He gets out and I get out. I have my weapon drawn and he's going for his. For a moment, I didn't know if he was going to try to shoot me or if he was going to run. There was that breathless instant. And then I saw him drop his gun and then he ran. He hits a tall wooden fence and vaults over it. And I'm a pretty big person and I, I feel my fingernails munching into the fence. And I feel the pain, and I see him disappear behind the houses. I ran out to the front of the houses, and then I hear on the radio that a woman had called 911 saying that this guy just ran into her garage. I was only a couple of houses away. I turned, go into the garage, weapon drawn. He was trying to dig a hole to go underneath the garage and get out. Or he's trying to bury himself. I don't know. I thought it was weird. I take him into custody and handcuff him. A moment later, I hear sirens coming from all directions. I was a block away from where my car was. There was a number of officers assembled around my police car. And I walked around and I had this guy handcuffed. And I tell you, I felt like a silverback gorilla, mighty and strong. I wanted to beat my chest and shout, you know, a victory right there. It just, it was awesome to get that guy, but it was even more awesome that I got him after I became Paula. There was this jubilant mood. We got him, we got him, we got him. And I saw everyone smiling and patting each other's backs and people were patting me on the back. And I, I see myself, my reflection in the window of my car, and I had been wearing like a little a wiglet on the front of my hair, and it was off. It would look, you know, it's like a bad toupee. Where I had these beautiful, shiny gold nails, they were all broken and jagged. 
one of my female coworkers said, oh honey, your makeup's melted off. And, and I just, I had this moment where my vanity just rushed in moment before where I was this charging triumphant silverback then all of a sudden I was this insecure woman and everybody was looking at me and they're not sure how to react and I almost would have preferred that they laughed but it was it was kind of quiet and then one of my lieutenants came over and he said good catch are you okay I tried to straighten my wiglet and I wiped my face and I looked down and I said I I broke my nails and he kind of smirked and he goes, you're not going to make an injured on duty report for that, are you? And then everybody just relaxed and started laughing. They were relieved that I could take a joke, I think. And for that moment, I'm basking in this respect. I proved myself. And for me, that was a decisive moment. Okay, I could handle it. I could do it still. Thanks so much, Paula. Paula is still a policewoman and a 20-year veteran on the force. She's also a writer. Check out snapjudgment.org for more of her work. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, listen up, Snap Nation, because the next story comes from a pretty remarkable man, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. I am Tom Tate, age 94. Can you imagine? Tom Tate is alive. Tom Tate is alive. It's pretty amazing when you hear his story. It began when he was only 27 years old, a young British airman flying special ops in World War II. One day, flying a mission over the German countryside, Tom's plane was shot down. And we were shot down on the way home and one of our engines was set on fire and the pilot decided that we should all bail out. So Tom and his crew ejected. He had no idea what he was about to find on the ground. I landed and wandered around and it was on the edge of a a town and I met another member of the crew and we sort of walked Tom and the rest of the crew stumbled into what they thought was an ordinary German village. What they didn't know was that the town had just been carpet-bombed by the British, an attack that killed over 18,000 people. They were entering a completely decimated area where locals had nothing left to lose and everything to be vengeful about. An angry mob surrounded Tom and the other airmen and captured them. A mob of people marched us down the road and I was held by about three or four civilians. And going down the road, I was beaten across the head with something. I realised that they were going to kill us. Surrounded by this angry mob, Tom Tate knew he had only one option. Somehow, he had to escape. How did I know that? Because instinct told me that they were going to deal with me without sympathy. Tom realized it wasn't just an angry mob. This was a lynch mob. I was beaten up and taken further down the road. And when we got round the corner, we went past the barn. And I could see about 10 ropes hanging from the, the woodwork. That's when I thought we were going to be hung. So Tom made his first move. I turned around and I broke away from the crowd of people. And as soon as I ran up the road, I said to myself, now I've done it, they'll shoot me. And as soon as I got up the road, I ran across the fields and into into the forest and hid under the shrubs. There were some shrubs there and I hid under there. Tom hid himself in the forest all night as townspeople searched within feet of where he lay. He eventually fell asleep and actually made it through to the next day. But then he realized he was in real trouble. 
I had no shoes, no socks. My feet were torn to pieces. And then I walked into a unit of German troops and I gave myself up. Tom dragged himself to an enemy base and surrendered to a group of Nazi soldiers. In comparison to the angry mob, they actually seemed like the lesser of two evils. The Nazis protected Tom. The soldiers treated him decently, but the town was still bloodthirsty, chanting, demanding that the Nazis give up Tom Tate. Amidst the calls for murder, one local woman saw her way clear to a moment of kindness. She'd heard of Tom's shoeless escape, and she wrapped up a pair of boots. At that point, my feet were torn. I had to crawl everywhere. Very, very, very painful. And there was a lady, and she gave the soldier a pair of boots to give to me. After eight weeks as a POW, he was flown home to England. But the five other crewmen who'd bailed out of the plane with him over the German countryside, they never made it home. They were executed by the angry mob and buried beneath five wooden crosses in the town center. Well, pretty dreadful, but there's nothing I could do about it, except I had to be grateful to Madame Fate for preserving me. And I said I would never go to Germany again. But 50 years later, Tom walked once more into this small German village, a town that had once been so hungry for revenge now wanted to atone for its past. And they discovered that Tom Tate still lived. Can you imagine? Tom Tate is alive. And they invited him back to apologize. When I arrived there, I was welcomed by everybody. I've never been kissed by so many ladies in all my life. There is one lady in particular a lady about his age that Tom wanted to meet. Her name was Emily, and about 50 years earlier, she'd given him a pair of boots. So the townspeople took Tom to Emily's home. I took her flowers and box of chocolates. Well, she could only speak very little English, and I could speak hardly any German, so we got on jolly well. She was absolutely wonderful, yes, she was, yes. But she became ill, and in time, she passed away. But Tom Tate says he's been spared again and again in his life, and he's still waiting to find out why. Mind you, I say it's Madame Fate. She's followed me the rest of my life, too. I'm 94, and I think still Madame Fate still has a purpose for me. I don't know what it is, but there you are. Tom Tate, keep on keeping on. And thanks for sharing your story with Snap. That piece was produced by our own Anna Sussman and Renzo Gorio. Now, we're going to take a little break. And when Snap Judgment continues, we're catching the last train out of town. We're going to exercise authority that does not belong to us and we're making a dinner you're not going to believe. For real, when Snap Judgment, the Walk in My Shoes episode continues, stay tuned.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Walk in My Shoes episode. Today, we're exploring what it's like to pierce the veil and discover the background of someone whom we thought we knew, or at least someone about whom we thought we knew everything we wanted to know. This next piece comes to us from Chris. He's a writer and a chaplain who works in county jail. So as a chaplain in a county jail, we'll meet with different guys in the upper and lower tiers for Bible studies. I'm doing a Bible study. It's not going well. It's really distracted group. And I keep saying, hey guys, hey guys, check this out. Trying to point back to this verse in John 5 or something. And a guy right next to me, he spins on me. He's like half white, half Chicano guy, a few tattoos on his face. And he points his finger right in my face and he says, no bro, how about you check this out? And he then countered by offering me and everyone else something much better, his own story. So, I mean, he monologued about the streets, about being a slave to the needle, about misery. He told us about betrayal. And I started to recognize the story. I'd seen this in the front page of the newspaper. I started taking notes. It all started with a robbery. That was his specialty, burglarizing houses. When the cops found him, it was a high-speed chase, then a helicopter, multiple squad cars. The chase went through neighborhoods and through the farm roads of our valley. So even though this started with a burglary, it turned into an evasion. The squad cars wouldn't give up on him. And that's what he really stressed to me. He told me he could hardly contain his delight, the thrill of so many people laboring to keep him in their sights. He had become Washington State's most wanted. Richard told me he wasn't wanted as a kid. His 15-year-old mother, as soon as she had given birth, slipped out of the hospital and she left him there. Richard swung the stolen sedan into tall fields of corn. Richard crawled out of the cornfield and ran up to the front door of a small house on a country road. He knocked and rang the doorbell. A frail, elderly woman, she opened the door, and she saw this strung-out guy she's never met before. Will you help me? They're after me, he says. She went to call the police to help him, but she didn't understand the full situation. He freaked out. He went to stop her, and this startled her. She tripped over the coffee table, and she cracked her hip. He helped her up onto the couch, and he left. When they finally found him on top of a storage container behind Walmart, they tasered him. In the following weeks, when Richard was there in the jail with us, the 83-year-old woman's hip was not mending quickly. After about three months, I believe, she contracted some form of pneumonia, and soon she died. With this woman's pulse going flat, Richard's bail jumped to $1 million. New charges from the prosecutor transformed Richard overnight from just a strung-out addict. Now, he was a murderer in the first degree. This guy was an old lady killer. I kept visiting with Richard one-on-one. He was there for three months, four months, five months. It kept going, and I enjoyed visiting with him. I didn't have any friends that would speak with such insight and such tenderness. Richard said, You want to know why I was so good at robbing houses? I did. He said, I just pretend it was my house. Other shady thieves sneak around, keep their heads low, move around back, you know? But me, I just pretend I'm coming home. Middle of the day. I walk right up the front steps, I open the door. If it's locked, I go to the next. No one notices. That's why I like doing this so much. Not just for the stuff, really. Because honestly, my favorite part is just sitting down in the living room, looking around, and telling myself, all this is mine. This is my home. See, I never had growing up. I mean, nothing. I never had a home. Sure, I'd crash in all sorts of places, but not a home, you know? A lot of times, I wouldn't steal anything. Only sit in the living room. Just to pretend. He paused, like listening to what he just said. And he says, does this make any sense or what? Although Richard was looking me straight in the eye as he told me this, I was often looking down, writing this down. I didn't want to lose his words. I was afraid of returning his gaze, I think. I would have felt even more than what I was already feeling inside, which is that I love this guy. I was coming here to visit him under the auspices of being a chaplain, but I wanted to be this guy's friend. So time passed. A year went by, two years, of Richard being in our Bible studies, me visiting one-on-one with him like this. And then finally, his trial came. His sentencing day. He finally stood, his wrists handcuffed in front of him, speaking to the woman's family. He says, I know you guys hate me already. I hate myself for the things I've done. I know I'm a monster. 
Those words were printed right underneath his face in the front paper. After he got to say his piece, the judge in his robe flipped a pretty rigid thumb through Richard's entire legal record. He said that it amounted to, quote, a commercial for how not to live your life. Within the week, he was on a bus to prison. Richard and I exchanged two letters. He just asked me about how my girlfriend and I were doing. Our roles were curiously reversed as he said this. I remember when you would ask me something, and you always wrote down what I said like it meant something to you. For me, it showed that you loved me. And that is why I love you as a bro, homie, because you showed me love. By the way, in your letters, why don't you ever say love Chris? What's laters? Well, love me. I missed him, so I went online to try to find a picture I could find. I read in the comment section down below his picture, one person from my community wrote, No one's safe until we get rid of these criminals, and the faster the better. He should hang for this, if you ask me, or at least rot in prison. Well, that is a pretty cliche line, I hope you rot in prison. That's exactly what happened to Richard. Within his only first few months there in prison, he started to deteriorate. He felt pain in his stomach at first. Soon he couldn't sit down, he couldn't swallow. He was burning inside. Nine or ten of concerned inmates in that sector started writing misspelled handwritten letters to a few of us pastors on the outside trying to report what was going on. How the nurses would come by and tell him again, there was nothing more to be done. The problem will take care of itself over the weekend. And it did. Richard was dead by Saturday night. He had gangrene in his intestines and throughout his system. At age 26, Richard literally rotted to death in prison from the inside out. Weeks later, I went to the funeral home. I came in the back and I was late and I tried to find a seat amongst a crowd of people that I largely recognized from my years being a chaplain at county jail. There were a lot of gang members with shaved head, the girlfriends and the homegirls with the hair pulled back and kids behind their legs. So I sat down and I saw that up front, right next to the open casket where Richard lay, there was a priest and a deaconess the Catholic Church had charitably sent. So what happened for the next hour is they repeated the rosary into the microphone. I looked around waiting for there to be a time where they would invite people to come up and share stories about Richard. But his life was being silenced by this, this litany. And I'm a person of faith, I'm a pastor, but just hearing the rosary drone over and over, I was getting really restless and I got really angry. So right before I heard the priest say, we're about to do one more final blessing, I stood up. I just went right up to the priest and I whispered and I said, I'm Richard's pastor and I'm going to speak now. And I turned around and stood at the podium and I faced a room of people that looked numb. I leaned in the microphone and the first thing I said was, Richard would have hated this. And hanging heads, they suddenly stirred. I said, I think he would have interrupted all this because when I first met Richard, I was trying to lead a Bible study in the Skagit County Jail and he interrupted me. I told the story about how he cut me off and how he said, no, bro, how about you check this out? And the whole quiet memorial room exhaled in laughter. That was the Richard they remembered and loved. I said I was used to working with men in the jail on the streets who won't open up much about their stories. But it's not just inmates. Most of us yearn to be fully known and loved, yet we hide and wait for someone to knock. Richard was different. Richard was desperate for someone to accept what he had, his thoughts, his voice, his life, his self, as if he were saying, will you let me in? Thanks so much, Chris, for sharing your story with Snap. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, you never know what that person next to you is going through. He may look great, fancy shoes, nice car, but you just never know. Well, Bernard Hare, he had none of that. He was a broker than broke student living on the outskirts of society in a tiny little hovel. He hadn't paid rent in months, hadn't been in touch with any of his family for a long time. When the police came calling, he wasn't sure what they were calling about. Now, this comes to us from way across the pond, 
They speak a little bit different over there. But give yourself a second. You'll understand. The police called at my student hovel early evening, but I didn't answer as I thought they'd come to evict me. I hadn't paid my rent in months. But then I got to thinking, my mum hadn't been too good, and what if it was something about her? So I had to nip down the phone box. I rang home to find my mother was in hospital and not expected to survive the night. I just knew from my dad's tone of voice that my mother was going to die that night, and I intended to get home. I got to the railway station to find I'd missed the last train. The train was going as far as Peterborough, but it would terminate there. But I'd missed the connecting Leeds train by about 20 minutes. Next train, final destination, Peterborough. Peterborough, final destination. I bought a ticket and got on the train anyway, but I had a screwdriver in my pocket. I planned to maybe steal a car in Peterborough. Steal something, get some money, anything, if it killed me. I fumbled for my ticket and gave it to the guard when he approached. He stamped it, but then just stood there looking at me. I'd been crying, had red eyes and must have looked a fright. You okay? Course I'm okay, I said. Why wouldn't I be okay? And what's it got to do with you in any case? You look awful, he said. Is there anything I can do? You could get lost and mind your own business, I said. That'd be a big help. I wasn't in the mood for talking. But he just sat down opposite me anyway and continued to engage me. If there's a problem, I'm here to help. That's what I'm paid for. I was a big bloke in my prime, and I thought about ragging him down the aisle to get him out of my face. But somehow it didn't seem appropriate. He wasn't really doing much wrong. The only other thing I could think of to get rid of him was to tell him my story. Look, my mum's in hospital, dying. She won't survive the night. I'm going to miss my connection to Leeds at Peterborough. I'm not sure how I'm going to get home. It's tonight or never, and I won't get another chance. So I'm a bit upset. I don't feel like talking, so I'd be grateful if you'd leave me alone. OK. OK, he said, finally getting up. Sorry to hear that, son. I'll leave you alone then. Hope you make it home in time. And he wandered off back down the carriage, back the way I came. I continued to look out the window at the dark. Ten minutes later, he was back at my side again. Oh, no, I thought, here we go again. Listen, they're going to hold the train up for you. When we get to Peterborough, shoot straight over to Platform 1, quick as you like. The Leeds train will be there. I looked at him, dumbfounded. It wasn't really registering. Come again? I said, what do you mean? Is it late or something? No, no, I've just radioed Peterborough. They're going to hold the train up for you. As soon as you get on, it goes. Everyone will be complaining about how late it is. But let's not worry about that on this occasion. You'll get home, and that's the main thing. Good luck, and God bless. Then he was off down the train again. Tickets, please. Any more tickets now? I was at my mother's side when she died in the early hours of the morning. Even now, I can't think of her without remembering the good conductor on that late night train to Peterborough. And to this day, I won't hear a bad word said about British Rail. Understand, that goes double for us here at SNAP we will not hear a bad word spoken about British Rail either. Big thanks to Bernie Hare for sharing his story with us. It was produced by Anna Sussman. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Walk in My Shoes episode. We'll be right back in just a moment. Snap Judgment. Tight, then you might feel what was dealt to me. You see, ain't no young boys up in here. Keep a clear head, trying to keep my pockets on stuff. Like dear heads upon the wall. So all the gold we get, we all don't. 
back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Walk in My Shoes episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and for our next piece, San Francisco-based creative phenomenon, Scott Kravitz, takes the Snap Live stage in front of an amazing audience. Scott tells us the story of how he walked in someone else's shoes. I, I stole something from a homeless person. Uh, one day I, I walked outside of my apartment and there was a dog just sitting there in my driveway. Uh, I could tell the dog was sick, but there was nobody around and the dog didn't have a collar, so I just put her in my car and dropped her off at the animal shelter. And a week later they called me to say that nobody had claimed the dog and she was too sick to put up for adoption, so they were going to euthanize her that afternoon. Now, I, I didn't want that on my conscience, but I knew that I couldn't take her because my apartment didn't allow dogs. And even if it did, I, I just didn't want that responsibility. Um, so, uh, uh, but nevertheless, at uh, five o'clock, I was, I was back at the animal shelter picking up the dog. Um, and my plan at the time was to sneak her into my apartment, nurse her back to health, and then find her a home as quickly as possible. And I really didn't want to get attached to this dog, so I purposely didn't name her. Um, but then one day we were walking, and this homeless guy started yelling, Anne, Anne! And that's when I discovered that not only was her name Anne, but uh, she had been raised on the streets and knew all the homeless people. And suddenly I was cool with all the panhandlers. And, <laughs> and, and it was like Hate Street had become this giant, filthy nightclub. And I, and I was dating this girl who knew everyone that worked there. Um, but the, uh, the turning point came when I met the ex. Uh, she was a 16-year-old runaway named Sheila. And she came up and hugged Anne and thanked me for taking care of her and started to take her back. And when I asked her where she had been, she said, you know, the Presidio. like." that's the place where homeless people like to summer. Um, and when I asked her why she hadn't been looking for Anne, why, why she hadn't gone to the shelter, uh, she said she just figured someone else was watching the dog. And that's when I kind of snapped. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience when all your politics get in a cage fight with your better judgment. Uh, I, mean, I mean, Sheila was clearly the dog's owner and it wasn't for me to tell her how to live. But legally, the dog belonged to me. Um, I had adopted her just minutes before a death that Sheila did nothing to prevent. Uh, plus, I knew if I gave Anne back, then her life expectancy was pretty short. So I finally told Sheila that she could have Anne back if she could get herself in a stable situation where she could keep a dog. I even offered to let her use my apartment, my, um, my bathroom, my, my phone, my computer, anything except live there if it would help her find a place. Sheila made a counter-proposal, uh, which was essentially that we have a duel. Um, she, uh, she and I would stand about, about 20 feet apart with Anne in the middle, and then we would each call to the dog and whomever Anne ran to would be her owner. But I felt that the, the possible gain in legitimacy wasn't worth the risk of losing the dog, and I turned her down. Uh, plus, I didn't know what sort of secret street treat she might have to entice the dog. I mean, Anne, Anne was still very much part of that world. Um, uh, and sometimes I'd even, you know, when nobody was looking, I'd even lay down on the sidewalk myself just to see how happy it made her. Um, so, so over the next month, uh, I found I was really falling for this dog. I mean, she was smart and affectionate and... Having grown up on the street, she wasn't freaked out by strange people or commotion. She was the perfect dog. And ironically, the more attached I grew to Anne, the more empathy I had for Sheila. Uh, but then one day, my brother called to say he had finally found a woman in L.A. who would take the dog. So that weekend, I drove Anne down to L.A. and dropped her off at the, this woman's house. But the moment I got back in my car, I just started crying. Um, I kept thinking about uh, a friend of mine who had gotten married really young 
she said that she wishes she had met her husband later in life so that she could have experienced more life as a single adult. But she knew that if she waited until she was ready to get married, uh, somebody as perfect as her husband wouldn't have been around. I knew that I wasn't ready for a dog, but I felt that when I was ready for a dog, I wanted it to be Anne. And then I suddenly turned the car around and raced back to this woman's house to beg for Anne back. And a few minutes later, I was standing on her doorstep getting a lecture about how unfair I was being because uh, the woman's cat had just accepted Anne. And, and the cat would be very upset if Anne left. Um, but eventually I wore her down and got Anne back. Um, so now I had basically stolen the dog from two women and a cat. Um, and on top of that, I had to find a new place to live. So I bought a house. Um, and as I was packing up my things to move out of my apartment, I got a phone call from Sheila. Uh, she said that she and some friends were going to travel around the country in a camper so she could finally have Anne back. And I said no. And that was it. Now I was the homeowner denying the homeless. I felt like I had become the man to whom I'd always wanted to stick it. Um, you, you know, there are some stories that we, we tell so often, they become a routine. This isn't one of those. Um, instead, I gradually worked up a story that was very sweet and heroic and absolutely true, despite the fact that it made no mention of Sheila. And I told that story so many times that I'd almost allowed myself to forget about this part of it. I mean, it, it happened 11 years ago, and I got a house and a great dog as a result. Um, and I haven't seen Sheila around in years, which is good because I hope that she's doing well. I hope that she's healthy and living in safety and comfort, but I'm still keeping the dog. Thanks. <laughs> Big thanks to animator, writer, performer, filmmaker, Scott Kravitz. The original score for that piece was composed and performed in real time on stage by Alex Mandel and the Snap Judgment players, David Brandt and Tim Frey. Now then, Snap Storyteller, Doug Cordell is a mild-mannered writer guy, the kind of person who's always writing himself into the eyes of his characters. But what happens when he's forced to play one of his characters in real life? About 12 years ago, I moved into what I thought was a great apartment deal on New York City's Lower East Side. It turned out to be a drug bazaar, with people hanging out in the foyer, making crazy noise, buying dope, waking me up in the middle of the night. My apartment was on the floor above. I tried to be cool, appealing several times to the dealer, a big guy in track pants and a muscle tee, asking him to keep it down. I didn't care what they were up to. I just wanted to sleep. He'd give me a big smile and say, no problem, bro, and I'd go back to bed. Then the commotion would pick up again an hour later and go through the night. This went on for a couple of weeks until one night when I went down to complain as usual. This time the dealer didn't smile or say anything, just glared at me. The next day I went out for Chinese food. When I came back, the dealer and his girlfriend were standing at the entrance to the building. And when I went to slide by, she whispered something that sounded like, you're dead. When I got upstairs, I found that somebody had crazy glued my lock, and I had to call a locksmith to get into the apartment. Now I was pretty freaked, although I couldn't be sure that I'd heard the girlfriend right. And who knows who put the glue in the lock? It could have been kids in the building. But I laid low for the next few weeks and tried to sleep through the noise. Until one night, 3, 4 a.m., when I was so sleep-deprived and going a little nuts, I just snapped. This time, when the noise came up the stairs, I marched out, half-dressed, and called down to the foyers. 
Listen, fellas, I said in a voice that came to me from some TV cop show. This isn't going to fly anymore. Get it? Business is closed. The dealer and his two customers looked up at me like they couldn't decide whether to bust out laughing or run up the stairs and kick my ass. But something made them hesitate. And feeling the power of the moment, I whipped around and marched back to my apartment, slamming the door. I slept soundly that night and woke up feeling better than I had in weeks. Over the next few days, I noticed my neighbors cutting me a wider berth than usual in the hall, even avoiding eye contact. I figured my outburst had earned me some grudging respect in the building. I also noticed that the all-night noise in the foyer had died down. Then one afternoon, I was heading down my block and I saw two boys about 10 years old laughingly yanking a couple of young pit bulls on choker chains, letting the dogs get within inches of tearing each other apart. As I got closer, the boys looked in my direction and I heard one of them say to the other, be cool, he's a cop, and they pulled the dogs apart. Now it all made sense. The sudden deference of everybody in the building and the hesitation of the dealer that night. I'd heard about landlords in the neighborhood renting apartments to city cops for almost nothing to scare dealers out of buildings. That's what I must have looked like. And my TV cop voice and sleep-deprived fearlessness only confirmed it. I realized at that point that I could easily let people in the building know I wasn't a cop. Or I could let them continue to think I was which would be a dangerous game. But the thought of the all-night noise coming back convinced me to give it a shot. So over the next few weeks, I played up the cop routine. I found a New York Rangers warm-up jacket at a consignment shop and added some wraparound Oakley shades. The virtual uniform of the New York City undercover cop. I even went around the block a few nights on patrol, giving a lingering stare to potential customers hanging in doorways, as in, move on. The charade began to wear on me, though. I started drinking more and sleeping badly, having crazy, violent dreams, which I wrote off to the stress of being a cop. One morning, about 6 a.m., I was yanked out of a deep sleep by the sound of a crowing rooster. In zero-tolerance mode now, I pulled on my jeans, threw on the warm-up jacket, and grabbed the Oakleys. Got a rooster situation in our All I could tell was that the noise was coming from the building in back of mine. I mashed several buttons out front and got buzzed in, and I bounded up the stairs following the crowing. Five flights up, I pounded on an apartment door yelling, I'm here about the rooster! I could hear voices inside, but nobody answered, so I tried the door, and it opened. When I stepped in, a room full of men and women, small, mestizo-looking, sitting in a circle on folding chairs, looked up at me wide-eyed, obvious fear on their faces. They appeared to be having some kind of prayer meeting. A few had Bibles on their laps. I caught my reflection in the mirror behind them. Even shielded by the Oakleys, I looked deranged. One of the women began to cry, and the man next to her mumbled something in Spanish and took her hand in his. I must have looked like someone from immigration, or worse. I'm sorry, I said, and backed my way to the door. By the time I got down to the street, my heart was thumping. I had taken things too far. That night, I put away the cop outfit for good. When the super told me a couple of days later that the landlord was suddenly offering tenants modest buyouts, a few thousand dollars to give up their rent-controlled leases, I decided to take it. During the next few weeks, as I got ready for my move, a funny thing happened. The dealer and his girlfriend disappeared. No one seemed to know what had become of them. Meanwhile, the entire building, in fact, the whole block, took on a relaxed, almost cheerful vibe. It was as if someone, some unsung hero, had reclaimed them for the people. The morning I moved out, a tenant was lovingly placing a potted plant in the freshly painted foyer. Down the street, In what had been an empty storefront, a new cafe was unrolling a grand opening banner. That was my last real lease on a New York apartment before leaving the city for good. I've been back to visit a few times, checked out my old building. The block, my beat, it's changed a lot, but it's still got an edge. Walking by, I get a brief surge of adrenaline, a muscle memory of fear or power. It's hard to tell which. 
Doug Cordell is an Emmy-nominated writer and performer living in the Bay Area, currently working on a novel. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Renzo Gorio. All right, it's about that time. And you say you want more? You want more? Well, there are full episodes available with you are. Snapjudgment.org. It's all there on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Android devices, and wherever else gold is cast about like straw. Facebook, Snap Judgment. Twitter, Snap Judgment ORG. Snap was produced by myself and the best clad team in public media. Please give it up for the cobbler in chief, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. You will insert no rhyme before it's time. Pat Masidi Miller. Stephanie, you can't walk in these shoes. Foo. Anna Sussman runs marathons and stiletto heels. Nick Vanderkoek believes socks are part of the problem. Julia DeWitt always wears roller skates. Jamie DeWolf's shoes curl up at the end. And Will Urbina prefers skis. Now, did you ever hear about people who walk across hot coals on their bare feet? Did you ever meet someone who actually tried it? Of course you have. It never really happened. It was just a joke we tried to play on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Many thanks to the CPB. And PRX, the public radio exchange, put in the public and public media, prx.org. And now, even though this is not the news, this is not the news. In fact, you go to camp, meet your new camp counselor, and when he's taking a nap, you and your new buddies could put shaving cream in his shoes. And when you get up to run away, you could fall right down on your face because the counselor had laced your shoes together. All that good, clean, wholesome country goodness could be yours and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. What this is. N-P-R. <laughs>